This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey guys, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast that I know you're going to love. Do you like travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by a true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and WTF stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder. But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms, Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every town has a dark side. The oldest part of one of the most prestigious schools in America... Stanford University in Clara County, California, lies the more than a century-old Stanford Memorial Church. Built during the American Renaissance period, it's the university's architectural crown jewel that never fails to awe its visitors. This church was one of the earliest and remains one of the most prominent interdenominational churches in the West. In more recent years, it was in the news as the site of the memorial service for Apple's CEO Steve Jobs, a native of California himself. But not many know, or prefer not to remember, the Stanford Memorial Church was once a crime scene of a brutal murder back in 1974. Arliss Perry may have been an ordinary 19-year-old girl, but how she was killed just a few feet away from the church's altar became a prominent case that achieved closure 44 years after. Well, almost. Hi, I'm Andy Fitzgerald, and welcome to this week's episode of Every Town. And we'll bring us over to Stanford, which was home to young bride Arliss Perry for just six weeks before she was found inhumanely killed inside the Stanford Memorial Church on the early morning of October 13th, 1974. Unexpected, unbelievable, unsolved for four decades, it was one of California's most perplexing crimes for a long time. 
Although the culprit was rightfully identified and finally got apprehended in 2018, the victim's family will never be able to find the answer to their question, why was Arliss murdered? Arliss Perry was born Arliss K. DeKema in Bismarck, North Dakota on February 22, 1955. She was in Stanford, California at the time of her death in order to be with her high school sweetheart turned husband, Bruce Perry, also born and raised in Bismarck, who was a sophomore pre-med student at Stanford University in 74. Arliss was the youngest of the three children of Marvin and Jean DeKema, who raised their kids in the quiet and sleepy town in the American Midwest. Arliss was described as a devout Christian, known for her very optimistic, compassionate, and kind nature. She had a sheltered upbringing that possibly molded her to become very trusting and naive. At Bismarck High School, she was a cheerleader who also excelled academically. According to her mom, Jean, the good-natured teen, expressed her kindness by baking cakes for her fellow cheerleaders and the high school's basketball team. She was a petite girl, but with a big heart, which is why Bruce became so enamored with her. The young man was not only dedicated to his studies as a scholar, but he was also a competitive athlete who set many local records for his prowess in track and field. pair became high school sweethearts, and as Bruce was determined to pursue a medical degree after graduating high school, he headed out to the prestigious Stanford University. Arliss still had one more year of high school, but the young couple continued their romance despite the 1,500 miles that separated them physically. While maintaining a long-distance relationship, Arliss finished school and then studied at Bismarck Junior College. Managed to squeeze in time working for the Duncan Perry Clinic in order to save money. In her free time, she worked with several church organizations spreading the gospel of Christ. Feeling the toll of not spending time with one another for over a year, Bruce and Arliss made a pact not to be apart from each other any longer. Their solution? Getting married, despite being years away from accomplishing their dreams. At first, her family wasn't too happy about the couple's decision because they felt they weren't old enough yet to get married, and California was pretty far from North Dakota. But Arliss's loved ones eventually embraced the lover's wish to tie the knot, On August 17th of 1974, the couple had a beautiful and big wedding at the Bismarck Reformed Church. A couple of weeks after their honeymoon, the newlywed couple made the initial step towards beginning their new life together by moving to Stanford, California. When the brand new Mr. and Mrs. Perry drove their car to leave their hometown for good, It never dawned on the Dekema family that it would be the last time that they'd see Arliss again.
two of them settled in an apartment in Quillen Hall, a residence reserved for married couples located in Escondido Village within the vast Stanford University campus. The newly minted bride from North Dakota found her new surroundings lovely and perfect for an enjoyable stroll. Time came for Bruce to resume his studies and his pre-med workload kept him busy going to class, studying and preparing for grueling exams. All this while also supporting himself and his wife. Mostly left alone in their apartment, Arliss spent time as a homemaker. Understandably, she felt lonely in the unfamiliar territory as she expressed in her regular letters to her family and friends. Friends are hard to find here, she wrote to her bestie in Bismarck. Many times I've been tempted to go knock on doors asking if anybody needs a friend. I guess we just have to appreciate each other and trust the Lord for new friends too. Before long, Arliss took on a job as a receptionist at the nearby Palo Alto law firm of Spath, Blaise, Valentine, and Klein, hoping to alleviate some of the loneliness and possible boredom she may have felt. Getting the job changed the young wife's disposition, and she wrote to friends about how her married life with Bruce was all falling into place. She found the California weather exciting, and her spare time in between working and keeping their home was spent walking and jogging around the university campus. It was inevitable for a religious individual like Arliss to be drawn to the huge and grand Stanford Memorial Church, situated just about a half a mile from their apartment. She frequented the church, which had become her sanctuary and a source of comfort and solace. Married life in California had settled in on the Perry couple and they were headed for bliss. Still in a period of adjustment though, Bruce and Arliss had occasional spats. These are normal, even add a little spice to a romantic relationship. No one guessed that a trivial tiff could lead to a major catastrophe an end to budding marital union even before it could ever fully bloom. And sadly, that was the tragic fate that awaited Bruce and Arliss just eight weeks after they exchanged I do's. The soothing breeze of the early fall season on the night of October 12th, a Saturday, was enticing enough for some of the college students to go out and party, although the campus was still relatively quiet. Arliss wanted to take a breather and decided to go for a walk to the mailbox as she had a new bundle of letters to send to her family and friends back in North Dakota. Bruce opted to join his wife instead of pouring over his med books. As the two were strolling around the campus grounds, their conversation segued into a discussion about who between them was responsible for checking the tire pressure on their vehicle. It may have seemed like a silly, minor squabble, but Arliss became upset and requested her husband to give her some alone time. Bruce also wanted to cool down, so 
headed back to their apartment a half mile away. Left on her own, Arliss went inside the nearby Memorial Church to pray. It was around 11 p.m. and the church was practically empty except for Arliss and two other people sitting in the back. They noticed that she sat at the front pew of the church on the left side. Moments later, while the two worshippers were about to leave at around 11.35 p.m., they noticed a man in a blue short-sleeved shirt entering the church. They described him as around 25 years old, with a medium build and parted sandy blonde hair. At roughly 11.50 p.m., night duty security guard Stephen Crawford went inside to inform them the church would be closed shortly. He came back 20 minutes later, took a quick look around, and when he found it empty, Stephen locked the church doors. Meanwhile, Bruce was anxiously waiting for Arliss to come home. His fear lingered in the back of his mind. He decided to head to the church by 12.30 a.m., knowing that was really the only place his wife could be. He found the doors locked and all the lights turned off. He checked the side doors and the back part of the church, but didn't find any open door. He then wandered around campus, hoping to bump into Arliss, or God willing, she'd already gotten back to their cozy apartment while he was out. But Bruce found their love nest empty when he got home. Back in the church, security guard Stephen checked it at 2 a.m. as part of his duty was to make a security pass every two hours, and he saw and heard nothing unusual. When there were still no signs of Arliss by 3.30 a.m., Bruce decided to call and report the incident to the Stanford security officers. They checked the church haphazardly and believed that no one was left inside as all the doors were locked. And then, a couple hours later, the man who secured the Stanford Memorial Church a few minutes past midnight would find Arliss inside. And Crawford's discovery was the worst anyone could possibly imagine to happen inside a venerated place of worship. At 5.45 a.m. on October 13th, Stephen made another security check at the church and found one of the west side doors already unlocked. With a bit of apprehension, he headed inside. The altar was intact and there was no sign of a theft. But the sight that greeted him on the east transit was so revolting that it could numb the senses, yours included, and so this is a precaution. Stephen found Arliss among the front row of the pews lying spread eagle on her back, half naked from the waist down. Her pants were draped across her lower half, almost in a ritualistic fashion, and they had been neatly placed. There were multiple bruises on her body which indicated that she suffered from a beating 
The mark on her neck showed she had been strangled. What was worse, an ice pick was protruding from her head, just behind her left ear. The handle of the pointed object had been broken off and was missing. Her blouse was ripped open, her cold arms positioned across her chest while holding close an altar candle pushed up between her breasts. Another 24-inch candle was forced inside her below that. It was the final brutal act that desecrated the body of Arliss. Stephen immediately called his superiors who got in touch with the Santa Clara Sheriff's Department, which had criminal jurisdiction over Stanford University. Shortly after, an investigation was underway. They determined that the unlocked west side door had been forced open from the inside, as in, that was an escape. They also found a man's DNA sprayed onto an altar pillow placed near the body of Arliss. Moreover, a latent palm print was found on the surface of one of the candles. Some accounts claim that from a bird's eye view, Arliss's body was set in a certain manner so that the position of her legs appeared like a diamond shape, resembling a pentagram. Thus, speculations that Arliss's death was some type of satanic ritual, or a few years later, believed to have been perpetrated by the son of Sam. But those all remained assumptions, depending on who you talk to. On October 15th, a memorial service for Arliss was held in the very church where she was found. Bruce was joined by his father and other family members, as well as the co-workers of Arliss, who were from the law office. Interestingly, one of her male office mates was surprised to see the quote-unquote real Bruce at the service. See, he thought Bruce was a man he had seen visit Arliss at the office, the same man he saw having what looked like a serious talk with her the day before she died. This male visitor was described to be in his early 20s, about 5 foot 10 inches tall with regular length blonde hair. This description resembled the man seen entering the church shortly after Arliss had gone inside too. Was he a potential suspect? He certainly should have been, but for some reason, investigators didn't dig deeper into this angle. October 18th, Arliss was laid in her final resting place back in Bismarck. It was attended by the grieving and outraged Akema and Perry families, kept the details of the murder from the public for a while. In tragedy, the family members were more united by their earnest desire to seek justice for the tragic demise of Arliss. The investigation eventually focused on the two people who had last seen the girl, her husband, Bruce, and security guard, Stephen Crawford, who discovered the body. Bruce readily submitted blood samples and took a polygraph test, which he effortlessly passed. 
From being the initial suspect, he was eventually ruled out as the possible killer of his wife. The stains on the pillow found near Arliss's dead body and the palm print from the candle didn't match up with either Bruce or Stephen. As forensic testing in the mid-70s was still in its primitive stage, DNA recovered from the crime scene didn't help much in the progress of the investigation at the time. Police felt like had Stephen done all his rounds at those two-hour intervals, it more than likely would have stumbled into the killer or the crime as it was happening, perhaps at least caught a glimpse of the killer. So they felt like he had lied, possibly, about making his round at 2 a.m. So, did he lie, and who really was Stephen Crawford in the first place? Well, he was a United States Air Force veteran who started working as an armed police officer for the Stanford Police Department of Public Safety in 1971. When a new police chief completely revamped the department, 75% of the officers, including Stephen, were forced out of their positions. For compensation, they were offered jobs as security guards, and that's how Stephen became one. By the end of 1974, the Arliss case had become cold. Two years later, Stephen left his Stanford job, but he also remained on the outskirts as a person of interest in the murder. Even if it wasn't his DNA on that pillow, perhaps there was more than one perpetrator and Stephen was one of them. While there was no progress in the case for a while after that, Stephen got into some legal trouble in 1992 when he was arrested and charged with stealing hundreds of valuable items from Stanford collections, including Western-style bronze statues and rare books. He spent a short amount of time in jail and was released shortly thereafter. In 1993, he moved to San Jose, California, in an area just off Highway 85 at the 5200 block of Camden Avenue. He moved into the first floor of the Dell Coronado apartment complex, where he lived in apartment 185 ever since. Stephen's neighbors found him normal, although he mostly kept to himself. His landlord said that the ex-security guard hadn't worked for some time and depended on either Social Security or his retirement. But for Santa Clara County Sheriff Lori Smith, who was obsessed in solving Arliss Perry's case, Stephen Crawford wasn't a retired suspect just yet. In fact, he'd been on top of the list since 1974. Nothing ever cleared him. There just wasn't enough evidence to charge him with a crime. Through the decades, the murder of Arliss had been in danger of being closed, but thanks to the advancements in DNA testing methods, investigators believed they could figure out who her killer was. As they reviewed old components of the case, they zeroed in on their number one suspect, security guard Stephen Crawford. In 2018, a new DNA sample had come in from Arliss's clothing one that could be examined in more detail 
and compared to what was found on that altar pillow. In calling the crime callous and cold, Sheriff Smith said detectives were able to break the case through the new DNA evidence that now linked the 72-year-old Stephen to the crime. It enabled the investigators to secure a search warrant for the suspect's apartment. Finally, justice for Arliss was within reach. At 9.04 a.m. on Thursday, June 28th of 2018, the detectives arrived at Stephen's apartment with a search warrant and a certainty to arrest him. As authorities knocked on the door, Stephen asked for a few minutes to get dressed, but it was taking him long, so the detectives decided to enter using a spare key from Stephen's landlord. Detectives immediately saw Stephen sitting on his bed with a gun in his hand. As the detectives retreated, the old man then pulled the trigger. One of the things found by the detectives in Stephen's apartment was a rambling note from 2016. Sheriff Smith said the date coincided with the start of an intense interrogation of Stephen again about Arliss's murder. Perhaps this was Stephen's only way of eluding arrest and conviction, knowing all along that time would eventually catch up with him. But was it enough compensation for the life of Arliss that he had taken away? The promising girl was just barely 20 years old. Arliss's family considered it closure, but sadly her father, who passed away just three months earlier, didn't get a chance to witness it. The Dekema family, however, their patriarch, is now celebrating in the afterlife with his daughter. The piece of the puzzle is still lost. Why exactly did Stephen murder Arliss almost 50 years ago? Until the answer is known, her murder isn't completely solved. And is it possible this man committed more heinous crimes that to this day remain unsolved out there? That's going to do it for this week's episode of Every Town. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Go check out this episode in video form over on our YouTube channel called Scary Mysteries. And if you want more podcasts from us, check out the Scary Mysteries podcast. We also have an exclusive channel that you can check out down in the description below. Thanks for tuning in today. Remember to come back next week for another episode filled with scary, strange, and mysterious stories. Because you never know. Maybe your town will be next.
If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com/audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com/audio. That's carshield.com/audio.